This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Begins where you left off. Wonders that defy my powers of description. The secrets that are mine alone. Morning. Uh, <laughs> you're tuned to 102.73 Triple R. This is Radio Marinara. My name's Bron Burton. And I'm John Ford. How are you, John? I'm doing very well. Good. Yes. Good. Um. <laughs> and uh, yeah, look, happy Mother's Day to all the mums out there, including to my mum as well. Yes, and, and, to, and to you, Bron. Yeah, and oh, to thank Kath. you. And to Kath. And to all the lovely mums who are in the. Oh, there's only one. That's Libby in the green room. <laughs> yeah. I was like, how many mums are in there? Just one. Um, yeah. Yeah, everyone out there. And think of it, you know, if you were a fish, you would have just seen your eggs go out into the ocean and possibly never see your oh, little ones again. Well, that's what they do, don't I they? I know, that's what they do. And they do it so yeah. well. They do it very well. Yeah. They make many, many, many of them. But it's sort of it's a different relationship with your children. It I is. Think. Hey, and we're not going to make a, uh, a huge deal of Mother's Day because we do know that it's it can be a very sensitive time for a lot of people. Yeah. who've either lost their mums um, or in various ways and, and for other reasons as well. But um, we do want to acknowledge it. And thank you so much. Um, and I'm just going to say very happy Mother's Day to my mum as well. Yeah, and she, to mine she as listens, well. <laughs> she subscribes every year. <laughs> she always sends me a, uh, a little thank you note after every show. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Hey, thank you very much to Glenn too. He's done an amazing job with uh, Vital Bits. Yes, he has. As always, we always love, um, it's always a nice treat when I'm getting ready to come into the studio and uh, hear Glenn's dulcet tones. Mm-hmm, so, indeed. Yeah. Hey, and, and while we're thanking people, thanks to Melissa for things to do today. She does that very regularly. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah, she's got we, a lovely. We always hear her. Yeah. All right, let's through, go through uh, today's program, John. Indeed. I you're think, kicking us off. Yeah, look, um, I'm going to be chatting a little. I guess you're going to be interviewing me to some degree there, here, Bron. But, I um, am. Um, yes, yeah, so I, I read an article uh, in the last week, um, and it was really based around the seafood labelling laws and sort of really pushing for um, some changes there, which may be on the cards, and also sort of investigating uh, flake and, and, and what actually is flake and what if we see it in the fish shop, I mean, what are we actually getting? Yes. What we're seeing? Yeah. Or what we think it is. Yeah. And not just um, and not just an article, I should say. It's an article in the conversation. In the conversation, yes, yeah. which is, uh, I guess, a media outlet for um, yeah, for, uh, for academics, for um, and in particular scientists like myself, but not just scientists, but anyone who's at a university and um, sort of really tries to get the experts um, out there in the media as opposed to uh, journalists reporting on what an expert may have said. So it's sort of getting a little bit more direct line of, uh, of conversation there. And we're going to explore all of those issues that are involved mm. with Flake. Yep. Indeed. Then we are going to be, now I'm crossing my fingers with this one, John. Haven't done this before. I'm assured it's reliable, you know. <laughs> We've come out of the age of the gramophone. Mm-hmm. We're going to be uh, crossing to Japan, or more to the point, Japan is going to be crossing to us because we're expecting a Skype call from um, Dr. Jackie Pocklington, known to her mates as Poco or Dr. Pock. <laughs> we'll ask her what, what we're allowed to call her. And um, and she's uh, she has gone to Japan to do a postdoc. Mm-hmm. Now, she's one of your mates, isn't she, John? Yes. She's one of your peers? Yes, certainly. Um, and she's a, a great algal researcher interested in the seaweed. So yeah. she's gone over there. And, of course, J- Japan love their seaweeds. They, they do. love to eat them. But they have um, also um, a strong connection with the marine world and uh, all the marine world. Our, our connection tends to be more with sort of the big things, the fish and the, and the dolphins and so on. But th- they tend to, yeah, it may have t- something to do with the fact they eat them all. But, um, yeah, they do have a connection with the wider marine environment. Yeah. Mm. So she's done her PhD here and then gone over to Japan to do a postdoc. So she's going to be uh, um, phoning us via Skype. Yep. I sound so (laughs) old-fashioned. We're just waiting for her to call. So that'll be about 9.30. And just really looking forward to hearing from her perspective what it's like to really step outside your comfort zone, you know, Mm. go overseas. It's a harsh reality for a lot of uh, marine scientists that when you've done your PhD, you have to take go spread your wings and fly away and go and do some stuff elsewhere. That's right. Um, not for everyone, but for some people it's something that just sort of really needs to happen. So, And she's done that, but not only has she done that, but she's gone to a country uh, that speaks a completely different language and one that she's completely unfamiliar with. Yep, that would be really interesting to hear from her. Really looking forward to talking to her. And then to close the show, uh, Terry Allen, our in-house dive reporter, She's coming into the studio. Oh, wow. Yeah. Really? We, yeah. No, we never got bread into the studio, did we? No, we didn't. <laughs> we didn't, actually. No, you're right. I think once. <laughs> I it was really before my time, but a long time ago. So um, Terry's coming in. It's, it's foul out there today, and she's not diving. Um, must be one of those handfuls of day, hand, hands full. What's the, can't get the collective noun right here. Yeah. Anyway, she's not diving today. So she's coming in, and we're going to ask her about winter diving, but other stuff as well. Mm, well, yeah. I can tell you a little bit about the weather. Please and do. How, how terrible it, it may be for diving. Um, uh, because today it is cloudy and a very high chance of, fla- of showers, most likely in the morning, 13 to 15 degrees. I dare say I was diving in the bay about two weeks ago, oh, and it was 14 degrees. Yeah, it was, it was one of those days where uh, I was in my wetsuit, and I was like, oh, Maybe it's drastic time for this. Is that a, a quick plummet? It feels like only, you know, very recent times it, it that it was, was up in the high teens. It was a very quick plummet this year, which is quite interesting. It's sort of gone from that sort of.
of uh, 16, 17, 17, maybe a little above that, to, to 14, 13, 14 very quickly, um, which is which is quite interesting. But uh, yes, anyway, well, for the rest of the week, uh, it's looking pretty similar to today, unfortunately. So tomorrow's top of 17, cloudy and a high chance of showers. Uh, Tuesday is a shower to 16, Wednesday being showers and 14, Thursday's shower two and 15, Friday a possible shower and 16, and Saturday is oh, partly cloudy. There you go. Right. Yeah, well, wow, there's a so week it's and the rain wait. might stop. Yeah, we have to wait that long for some respite. That's amazing. Yeah, indeed. And the swell, um, look, I've been told the swell, um, if you're a surfer, is um, pretty amazing out there um, in, in certain areas anyway. Let's, the surf coast is great again this morning with moderate swell and west-northwest breeze. And I think so, west-northwest breeze is really holding up those waves. I think it's a, it's a good thing um, for the surfers. A large swell is due later but with an onshore wind. Uh, so Phillip Island, bumpy and choppy. Moynton Peninsula, poor 2.25 metre waves. Oh, this is... And Surf Coast, uh, excellent reef waves to 1.5 metres. Yes. Certainly heard down in Gippsland that they are they are large and pretty amazing. Wow. Mm, yes. Cool. Hey, uh, we're going to play some music in just a second. Before we do, a couple of quick plugs I wanted to get in. Um, one was some correspondence we had during the week from Jay Power. He's a Triple R subscriber from the Mornington Peninsula. And he and a mate have just started up a surf club called Mornington Peninsula Loggers. And uh, I was thinking, Loggers, what's the reference there? They're longboarders. So um, just he just wanted to give it a bit of a plug. They're organising their first event for the 23rd of this month. Uh, so um, thanks, Jay, for getting in touch with us. And what I might do is uh, I will get in touch with you um, offline and we'll organise a time for you to come on the show and have a chat about the Mornington Peninsula loggers and what's so cool about longboarding. Dr Surf's talked about this before. but uh, And also about this particular event to um, draw attention to the Mornington Peninsula loggers. Mm. Good fun. And while we're talking about plugs, uh, another one, and we'll put some details to this on our website, the Bolt Blowers. I don't know if you've heard of the Bolt Blowers, John. Uh, no, tell me about them. They are a group of uh, like-minded surfers and bolt blowers, the reference to um, to mental health, as in you blow your bolts when oh, you... Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I actually had to ask, which was really embarrassing, but anyway. We're like Frankenstein with the bolts Yeah, there. exactly, oh, exactly. Yeah, okay. Pop out when it, when it all gets too much. So the bolt blowers, um, look, they're an amazing group. They're drawing attention to mental health, and that's a wonderful thing. The other thing that they do is fundraise for a group called the Good Life Farm, and uh, this is a, a place, it's actually not near the sea, it's up near Hill. I think from memory, Hillsville, Lilydale, and um, they provide a space for people who are having a particularly hard time with mental health issues to go and defrag and kind of get their life back in order, and particularly youth. They're very focused on so youth. So really worthy cause there. Oh, amazing, amazing. And and the, the woman who runs it, I have forgotten her name, um, but outstanding in terms of the work that, that she's done and her group's done over the years. Fantastic. What's the details on it? Okay, that? so the details. They're having their 10th anniversary fundraising gala event. It's next Saturday, 16th of May. Uh, it's in Collingwood. I don't have the actual address, but the best thing to do, we will put a link to what they're doing on our our Facebook page, but if you Google uh, Bolt Blowers Gala, Gala that yeah. will just take you to uh, to the details for that. And it's uh, such a wonderful cause, and um, good on you guys. And of course, we will always get behind anything that you do. <sighs> <sighs> and right now, you're listening to Radio Marinara on Three Triple R, and it is 14 minutes past nine. It is indeed. Oh, and thanks to the caller who rang in too, who um, who uh, was reminding me. Leslie Porter is the wonderful woman who does all that wonderful uh, yeah. work. Great with Good Life Farm. All right, we're now turning our attentions to. The conundrum of flake, <laughs> and you take on flake. You take on flake, perhaps. Yeah. So um, this is an article that you wrote, and um, 
we should acknowledge Associate Professor Rob Day as well. Yeah, so myself, John Ford, and um, and, and Rob Day, who I work with at Melbourne University, um, we penned an article in The Conversation, um, which is a great media outlet for academics, um, yeah, around flake and also around uh, seafood labelling laws, which uh, is um, really, a, they're really a bit of a mess right now. So let's start with the obvious question about flake, because mm-hmm. we've talked about this before on the program, yeah. and various conservation groups have run some very uh, successful campaigns just really, I guess, to do two things. They've done two things. One is to draw the attention to the issue of flake, and um, they're obviously very polarised in their views on... Um, not pol- Well, you know what I mean. They're, they're strong in their views, saying yes. that we should not be eating flake. Now, others have come out and said, well, hang on a minute, it's not as simple as that, mm. and that's largely what you and Rob are doing with this particular article. Yes. What, what is flake, John? Yeah. <laughs> well... I guess one of the main problems is is that flake, uh, certainly in its cooked form, when you see it in a restaurant or a fish and chip shop, um, can really be any fish because there isn't any uh, mandatory or sort of um, enforceable um, standard um, of fish names. Um, There is a fish standard. Uh, fish name standard, which is uh, basically best practice. So it is what you should do if you're doing things well. But in the end, if you don't do it, that's not, uh, yeah, there's something actually actually wrong with that. Of course, it, it is illegal to uh, be dishonest in the way that you put out products. But yeah, that, that that's sort of that's something which is a lot, a lot harder to kind of prove. So, yeah. so actually what flake is... We, it can really be anything when it's in its cooked form. Yep. Um, traditionally, though, it has been shark. It's some kind of shark, usually. And mm. it has a quite a distinctive taste. It's got that quite metallic taste that you do tend to get in, in shark, that more than other... Yeah, yeah, maybe. It depends on the um, the age of the... Yeah, I mean, yes, you could describe it as that. Um, <laughs> I mean, people would call it a sweetness. Yes, I mean, everyone tastes dif- things different. A different texture, so. and, and it does yeah. flake. I mean, the, the, the it, flesh flakes it, it off. It flakes, and it's quite, it, it's quite soft. Just, so traditionally, um, although it can be anything, it's generally been shark. And uh, it, going back into um, the past, it's often been school shark. Um, but nowadays, it's mainly gummy shark. And in fact, under the fish name standard, which I say we have and it's best practice but not not actually enforceable, it flake can only be gummy shark or a related species of the same genus that comes from New Zealand called rig. Yeah. So it's actually only two species that you, you're meant to um, have labelled as flake. So the issue here, of course, and coming back to what you were saying, is that we don't actually know what's inside that batter or inside that breadcrumb or whatever. If it's called flake, it could be anything. And unlike other fillets, if you buy it um, from... Let's let's just stick with a fish and chip shop because it's probably the easiest um, yep. space to stay in at the moment. You've got your choice of King George Whiting, Blue Grenadier usually, um, and then Flathead and then other species. And then you kind of get this flake, which is, as you're saying, it's has technically supposed to be, but there's that issue around, you know, yes, it is illegal to misrepresent something, but if you have a, a, a like a, a blanket term like flake, how can then you argue that something is illegal if, if the term's actually used? Should we just be well, historically abolishing the used. use of the word flake? Well, no, I, look, I don't think that that is actually going to happen. I don't think it, it, it's going to happen from the restaurant sector or from the fish and chip, sh- fish and chip sh- shop sector because it is such a well-known and commonly used name. And I think that that's fine. And uh, I think that, you know, 
know, to take that away is, is, is a little bit unfair. It's interesting, though, because if there is an illegal aspect, if something, if it's illegal to misrepresent a product by using a name that doesn't directly dis- describe what it is that you're eating, doesn't Flake kind of do that anyway? Because it's not saying that it is gummy shark. Shouldn't well, we just be calling it gummy shark if that's what it is? Well, yeah, um, I think that there's probably a, certainly in its, cook, in its cooked form, a, a reluctance to say you're eating shark. Mm. I mean, Flake is just a safe term. It's, it's what you go and buy when on the Fridays when you go and buy your fish and chips. Mm. And look, Bron, you're saying there earlier that when you, you know, at the fish and chip shop, you might see King George Whiting, you might see Flathead, you know, thing. certainly what really spurred me on to, what really kind of drove me to write this article is that I went to a fish and chip shop and they had the fish displayed there in, in front um, in their sort of, you know, the uncooked format ready to be battered and then put in. Now, they said this was flathead and they said that this was blue grenadier and they said this is... None of them really looked much like the fillets I knew they were meant to be. Right. So you're suggesting... The local versions of what they were meant to be. Right. The issue is, is a lot of the, 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 the fish, say a flathead, it could be flathead Australian, but likely if you're going to buy if these fish and chip shops are going to buy it frozen in bulk it's probably from argentina it could come from um could from new zealand or it could come from china you don't know there's a lot of things that they get named sort of flathead and so when i looked at that i thought well from my knowledge and i know a lot about this it's likely that in this particular fish and shop the only fish that was australian was probably the flake Right. Even even the King George Whiting. Well, Whiting, it wouldn't have been King George Whiting. King George Whiting is too expensive to, right. use, to batter and, and sell in fish and chip shops. Okay. So you're simply not going to get that. Right. Um, you might get up in New South Wales where they have Sam Whiting, which is a bit cheaper, but not here. And so that really we going, okay, well, I better start thinking about flake because I want to buy local. That's, that's one of my things. I want to buy local fish, but I need to start knowing a little bit more about flake and exactly what that's going to be mm. if, if I'm actually going to make that purchase. So the, there are really two issues here, and this is one thing that your article teases out really well. One is what falls under that umbrella of flake, and it should be gummy shark, but we really don't know. It could be anything. And then it comes down to the seller, whether they know the product that they're selling and whether they know the product that they're cooking. Yeah. So there's, there's that issue about what flake is. Then there's the issue of sustainability as well. Mm-hmm. And as you and um, and Rob point out in your article, uh, we can be very confident with pretty much anything that we buy if it's from an Australian fishery that it is being sustainably managed. Yeah, look, it's um, uh, yeah, look, we, we, we're not perfect. We've still got a long way to go, and, and as you're saying, we're still ironing out. Well, you we say ironing out. There's still a lot of things say around the Super Troll at the moment, which I'm not going to get into right now. But um, you know, there, there are still things we need to work out. But we're not anywhere near perfect, but um, we are sort of leading the world in terms of, so if you want to buy fish, yes, you're going to get the most the most sustainable if you buy local. That's it's right. It's just that simple. But having said that, and here's where the, here's where the issue comes in, that 75% of what we sell in Australia of seafood, 75% of, Austra- of seafood sold in Australia is is not from Australia. It's imported. It's that's imported. right. Yeah. Yep. And so that's that's the reality in which we which we live. And look, really, what what are one of the points I want to get across is that, it, you know, buying local, buying Australian has an underlying level of environmental and social sustainability, right? And and then because we've talked about in, in recent months about uh, about um, slavery in the in the fishing trade in, in in Southeast Asia, that's something which you know in Australia we've pretty much got a handle on right environmental standards sure they might not be perfect but we've got a handle on them what that means is that translates into prices which might be a little bit higher than imported competition i'm thinking well if i want to be able to make that decision and understand why that fish might be more expensive it needs to be labeled so i know whether it's local or whether it's imported that's right so where does that come in 
Yeah, well, where, where, where are we now in that? Because there's been a big push over recent years to really tighten up that issue of fish labelling. Where are we at with that at the moment? Yeah, right. Well, any um, fresh product needs to be uh, labelled as either local or imported. So that, 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 that's a requirement for all um, for, for all fresh seafood and frozen seafood. So if you buy frozen seafood in a, in a packet or in the shop, so it should it should have that, and that they most most should should be doing that. Um, however, you don't, as I say, that it doesn't have to be named a certain. Fish as a certain species because that's only a best practice that's only a standard that's not a not but when it comes the real issue is when it comes to the cooked form so you don't have to on your menu or on your fish and chip shop board put whether a fish is local or imported now there's this, obviously is, this, this really upsets me. I just see a complete double standard here mm. that it's okay to have something in a display cabinet and it's raw, but if you go to a shop and you buy basically this what should be the same thing but it happens to be cooked and presented, that there's no labelling laws around that. Mm. It just seems to be a complete contradiction. Uh, yeah, c- certainly. And uh, look, the Northern Territory led the way. Um, on this, and I did a really, really great interview with ABC in Darwin um, during the week, um, and they were like, "Well, we've been leading the way since 2008 with this, and they've done it, and it hasn't kind of brought the in, the restaurant industry to its knees. It hasn't stopped all imported seafood. And these are sort of some of the arguments that come up against this. You know, like we're going to have to change our menus every week when we write on different fish, whether it's imported. And well, they change the menus every week anyway. But it's sort of yeah, the, 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 and that's sort of a an important case study to look at and say, all right, well, it didn't destroy the industry there it hasn't destroyed the imported you know the fish importers so it can work and we've got it happening in australia we just need to spread that out to the re- to the rest of the country mm. one question you might not know the, the answer to this because i'm sort of putting you on a spot a little bit do we know what proportion of gummy shark uh, sold in our fish and chip shops comes out of port phillip bay is there a, is there a gummy shark fishery and i think you probably know where i'm leading with this yeah um look there is gummy shark caught in port phillip bay uh and it would most likely go to some some local fish and chip shops potentially and also uh, most of it is actually caught in Bass Strait so right. it's caught in Bass Strait and so on but no um, no it's it's not a lot of it's caught in Port Phillip. Yeah so. so I was thinking about <laughs> netting and obviously this is the other um, news of the week I suppose was the uh, the state budget that came out and 20 million dollars allocated over the next four years mm. to phasing out commercial netting in the bay and this is something we spoke a lot about before the last state election. Yeah so they have come through and followed through with that particular uh, commitment yes. uh, and uh, it looks like they will be banning netting and buying out licenses uh, within Port Phillip Bay. So, um, but that shouldn't affect the, the gummy shark anyway, because that's likely to be long lined, as in um, as in bottom set hook long line that they would they would catch those with. Okay, so where to from here? Yeah, look, where, where to from here? Look, there is a bill currently uh, in front in front of the Senate uh, because there was an inquiry last year and it came out saying yes, we need to do these all the things I'm talking about. We need to do this bill came the, this, so the Nick Xenophon, a uh, number of the independents and also the Greens have put a a, a bill saying look. We need to we need to sort of uh, start labelling this cooked seafood. So that will be discussed on the twelfth of May, which I believe is what uh, this week. Uh, in so two days. Be, yeah, two days. So it will be discussed um, in the Senate. So this can this may be happening very very soon. And I'm certainly throwing my support behind it. Excellent. Thank you, John. Cheers, Bron. And if people want to catch this article and read it for themselves, yeah, what's uh, the best way? Yeah, that go they can to theconversation.com and just search flake or yeah shark or something like that and it should come up or my name john ford um and yeah it'll come up pretty easy to find great yep thanks john cheers wonderful hi i'm david suzuki and you're listening to radio marinara on three triple r 102.7 fm 
Thank you, Dr. Suzuki. Yeah, I love you, Dr. Suzuki. Yeah, we do. Hey, got some news, John? Yeah, I do. Look, um, something which is really, uh, it's been going on for a few years, but uh, it's something which really kind of hit the hit the news this week. And it's about a traditional dolphin hunt in the Solomon Islands. Mm. And uh, so d- traditionally, the um, Solomon Islands have used dolphin teeth in dowries and in sort of ceremony, ceremonial jewellery and so on. It just seems that the price of this and the demand for these dolphin teeth have really gone through the reef roof recently. And so um, I think it was in 2013, they, um, they killed 1,600 dolphins um, and so we're dealing with you know significant amounts of dolphins being killed every year and mm. um, there's a sort of this has been brought to light again because there was a, an NGO that came in environmental NGO which basically came in and paid the Solomon Islanders to not do it which doesn't sound very sustainable in the long term mm. but that's sort of fallen through and there's been some issues there with um, potential corruption and so on and um, not within the NGO but within sort of the, the communities and so on and the money not seeing it and now they've started again so it's something that we really need to sort of start thinking about as a traditional practice but something which um, Certainly in Australia, um, we would sort of go, "Oh wow, um, how could you do that?" And it's sort of, it's just sort of more something, more something to, to think about in our minds. All right, well, you know, we are really, we're really focused on things like, you know, stopping the, the deaths of of dolphins in our fisheries, um, where in other countries, for for a variety of reasons, may actually be hunting them. So it's just something that we need to kind of come to terms with and find a way mm. to help help out on that. Indeed, I've got a couple of quick ones. And uh, then we're going to play some music. Uh, one was another piece of correspondence that came to us during the week. Um, Jason, who emailed, and that email came through to me yesterday. Thank you, Jason. And I'll get in touch with you as well um, offline. Um, Jason's organised rally next Sunday, 17th of May, on the waterfront in Geelong. And it's all related to the Super Trawler, something that he's upset about in his perspective, uh, from his perspective as a surfer and a fisher as well. And uh, he, he's very concerned about it. So um, just a, a bit of a plug for that. Uh, Jason in Geelong, thank you organising a rally uh, on the waterfront in Geelong and I will give you a call and we'll um, we'll get you on air next week to, to talk more about that. But I thought I'd put that out there, particularly for our listeners uh, in Geelong and on the Bellarine. If um, the Super Trawl is upsetting you, there will be a rally taking place next Sunday and uh, we'll get some more details on that during the week. Another, uh, another one I wanted to draw attention to was something that came through from the Australian Marine Conservation Society and they're always after support, but um, this is um, particularly exciting for them in um, particular reference to their campaign about the Great Barrier Reef uh, and their concerns about the expansion of the coal port there. Um, They have a very passionate and, uh, (laughs) let's just say, you know, money's not really an issue for them. It's the Thomas Foundation, John. Mm-hmm. heard of the Thomas Foundation before. Um, so they, they are great benefactors in the conservation and environment scene. They've just pledged to match uh, every one-off donation made to the Great Barrier Reef campaign between now and June 30. And so, of course, all of these donations are tax deductible to the Australian Marine Conservation Society. And this is this donation is not to join. You're not being requested to you know pay a certain amount of money every week or anything like that. It's a one-off donation. Whatever you donate, the Thomas Foundation will match. So it's a great opportunity to really leverage some great funding for the AMCF with their uh, marine campaign for the Great Barrier Reef. We'll put a link to AMCS and and this particular campaign on our website as well. And uh, someone who might be in a sunny place today is our next guest. Now the life of the marine scientist, it's not all beer and skittles, tropical diving and pretty sunsets and in many cases freshly fledged PhD graduates have to be prepared to pack their bags and relocate in just about any other part of the world. Our next guest has done just that. She's not only left Australia but she's in 
embarked on her next phase of research in a country with a completely foreign language. And uh, not only that, it's one that she does not speak. To talk about her experiences and what she's researching now, we're very delighted to welcome Dr. Jackie Pocklington, a.k.a. Dr. Pock, a.k.a. Poco, <laughs> live via Skype in Japan. Good morning, Poco. Good morning. How are you going? <laughs> Was that a sufficient introduction? It's quite, a, quite an introduction. <laughs> hey, welcome back to Radio Marinara because you have been on before. Thank you. Uh, how are things going in Japan? Let's start with a general one. Um, they're good, yeah. Well, it's spring here, so I guess we're getting better weather than you guys. But um, Do you, yeah, Are there lots so, of cherry so blossoms? Are there lots there of cherry was. blossoms? Oh. The cherry blossoms have now all fallen off and the leaves have come, but yeah, that was actually pretty amazing. I thought maybe we might start with your journey to start with and um, talk a bit about your PhD. John mentioned earlier in the program that it was working with algae. How did yeah. you, let's start with talking about your PhD and how you ended up in Japan. Well, they're sort of vaguely related, but um, well, but maybe more than vaguely, but I worked on intertidal um, seaweeds back in Australia, so working on um, everybody's favourite Hormosara banksia uh, and yes. Neptune's necklace. So I was working on the community associated with that and how it deals with disturbance. And, um, yeah, so now I'm doing similar things, but I'm working underwater. So out scuba diving and doing subtitle stuff on different species over here. And how did, um, how did the postdoc come about? Was that something that developed through the academic associations you made during your PhD? How do, how do you end up going from doing a PhD in Melbourne to heading over to Japan? What, what was that sort of connection for you? Well, the connection for me was my lovely supervisor and mentor, Dr. Alicia Belgrove. Um, she did her postdoc after her PhD in Japan as well with the same um, host that I have. So she um, sort of got us talking and we, I applied for the... They've got the Japan Society for Promotion of Science um, has postdoctoral fellowships from um, overseas. And so I applied through that and we had to put together a project proposal and all that sort of thing, and they said, yes, please come along. So I've applied for a few different postdocs, but this was the one that wanted me to come, so and, here I am. And uh, and what was the first issue for you, other than not speaking Japanese and heading over to spend a couple of years in Japan? How did, how did you um, find sort of that? Was that a confronting barrier for you, or was it more a case of, oh, well, I better learn Japanese? Well, it was a bit, but I sort of thought, oh, well, I'll give it a go. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> but it can't be that bad. Yeah. <laughs> And how has that been? Because I know, um, I know Alicia, Alicia went through me with um, with undergrad and postgrad as well. And I know for her, because she was in a very similar position to you, sort of this opportunity yeah. came up and over she went and she didn't really have any, um, she had no background in Japanese. She sort of did a yeah. quick quick course before she left and then she's picked the rest up when, when she went there. Is that kind of what you needed to do as well? Pretty much, except I don't think that I've done a very good job of picking it up. <laughs> I'm sure you're much better than you think. Oh, I don't think I am. Yeah. <laughs> I can get by. Yeah. I thought maybe we might move to um, some just a bit of discussion around what's it like on the coast and underwater and how does it compare yeah. to what we know here in Australia? It's especially temperate Australia with our temperate reef ecosystems. Yeah. How does it compare over where you are? Yeah, well, I'm up in um, a town called Sendai, which is in the northeast part of um, the main island Honshu in Japan. So it's on an area called the Tohoku Coast. So most people would know of it due to the um, 2011 earthquake and tsunami. That's sort of the region that was affected by that. So um, the coastline there is temperate, but it's also affected by um, warm currents from the south in 
where we are and cold currents from the north. So we're in a really diverse area, which is quite interesting. I was really amazed the first time I went diving. Like it's, you think for a country that's um, quite heavily, that fishes quite heavily, including seaweeds, it was just beautiful. There's all different varieties and all those sorts of things, lots of different invertebrates. A few fish, but I'm quite, I work quite shallow, so it's probably not their <laughs> favourite spot. So, um, so Jackie, certainly Japan has a real, um, real love of seaweed. I mean, they certainly yeah. through through food more than more than anything else, and a real love for the marine environment generally, and again through food. I mean, do you do you feel a real connection with um, the, the, the people have over there with the marine with the marine environment through that? Yeah, definitely. Like, I think the big change I've noticed is. If you say to people, they go, oh, what do you do? You go, I work on seaweed. They're like, oh, wow. Not like... Oh. <laughs> Not ooh, yuck. <laughs> yeah, that's sort of the main <laughs> response I've noticed. But, yeah, everybody really likes seaweed. I mean, one of the main dishes you tend to see, apart from things like um, miso where you get seaweed in them, but um, seaweed salad, they have like a little tiny seaweed salad chopped up with a different dressing or something like that. That's so something Jack- that I've not used to eating So Jackie, so much, would, would popular here. Jackie, would you say that you ate seaweed most days? No, not most days, but um, certainly every week. Yeah, right. A few times, yeah. Um, Jackie, there was a fair amount of uh, concern um, after the earthquake and after the tsunami in Mm. terms of um, the potential for radiation leaks to particularly affect um, seaweed production. Where's where's all that at the moment? Is that... Um, That's that's one thing as a not very good Japanese speaker that I don't quite... No. Our lab does do some work on um, collecting um, invertebrate samples and those sorts of things from different regions further away and closer to um, the plant. But um, I'm not actually sure of what the results are for those, but they do have a website where they're putting things up, but it's all in Japanese, so right. yeah, I can't read it. We'll have to get Alicia to have a look at it and she can translate yeah. for us. Yeah, they, they haven't, they haven't t- told us to stop diving, but... Yeah, I'll, we can go with I that for now. I think we're far enough north that um, that we're out of the out of the area. So, what's the? Um, I wanted to ask you about marine research in Japan because, of course, mm-hmm. particularly in mainstream media here, we only really hear about one thing, which is the the yeah. lack of marine research and what's going on down south. But let's let's talk about the real marine research that's going on. What are the what are their priorities, and do they vary sort of around different parts of Japan as they do here in Australia? I guess maybe let's starting with the lab that you're working with, and then yeah. having a look at some other places as well. Yeah, sure. Like our lab, um, we've got we're in the marine plant ecology lab, but that actually includes people that work on plants. And there's a big um, section that work on sea urchins, mostly from sort of a fisheries perspective, but also um, looking at areas where we've got things like algal barrens and that sort of thing, which is a problem all over the world. Mm. Um, so that's sort of what they work on. But there's also a lot of work in our area on um, the effects since tsunami. So um, there's a lot of people that have that were here during the um, during the disaster, and um, they've been collecting data beforehand, and they've been looking at it afterwards because um, the entire coastline um, actually sunk by 90 centimeters, oh. nearly a meter. Wow! So yeah, when I first came to do work here, I thought, oh great, I'll do some more intertidal stuff, and they're like, there is no intertidal <gasps> stuff. At all. It's all become subtitle. It's become subtitle, oh. so which is kind of mind blowing. Oh. <laughs> but yeah, so. Um, I was like, oh, okay, I guess subtitle it is. But, yeah, there's a lot of – they've been doing a lot of um, being able to change, you know, where they've got new communities and where the depths and all those things have changed. But I was really quite impressed, actually. One thing I've noticed here that 
I've noticed is mainly different from back home is there seems to be still a lot of importance on people doing, um, you know, research on, you know, the, how things grow and how they interact and really sort of um, primary level research. It's not sort of about the new fad in, um, you know, modelling and all that sort of stuff. They really are interested in the pure pure research and that's fine it's not sort of discouraged and pure ecology as well so not necessarily needing to have an applied element to to everything yeah yeah that's it is encouraging it is yeah and um what about other uh postdocs are there other postdocs in your lab um there's two other postdocs in my lab that are also um teachers so they do some classes and those things as well um one of them does um some work on seaweed and on urchins and the other one does work on uh, tiny little invertebrates like crustaceans. So little tiny, what, what are they called? I'm trying to think of the right. Like the shrimp easy. or crab or what copepods? Uh, even tinier. Oh so wow! More. Um, Smaller than copepods. I guess. I guess. Uh, <laughs> I guess. I guess caprellids. I think. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. I think they're a yeah. bit bigger. Wow. Yeah. Oh, how cool. And and their yeah. and their research is all very uh, ecological based as well. Yeah, it's all ecological based and they also work on um, putting together data for this website so it gets compiled from other places in Japan mm. and um, putting it all together on, on a website so they've got a database. So I guess similar to some things like I think it was BlueNet. I think it's a bit... Does anyone remember BlueNet? Um, I do vaguely remember it. It was sort of a repository yeah. for all sort of marine science data and unfortunately it's yeah. a bit defunct now but uh, yeah. it would have been a great thing if it continued on. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. yeah. so hopefully they'll have better luck. Yes. Now, um, at the Australian Marine Sciences Association, their Mm -hmm. annual conference is coming up, and this Mm -hmm. year it's at Deakin University's Geelong Waterfront Campus. We'll be talking a lot more about that in the weeks to come. Are you coming back for it? I am. And will you be presenting on some of your postdoc research? I will. I'll be presenting on an experiment that I've run, which I'm frantically in the lab getting the data for so I can make sure I can tell everybody about it at the conference. Great. Fantastic. We're looking forward to it. Yeah, looking forward to it. And um, and when you come back, we'll get you in studio and we can talk a little bit more about, about some of the work that you're doing as well. We can actually yeah, sure. chat to you face-to-face. That would be nice. Yeah, and maybe explore some more about your PhD as well because we sort of haven't really got into that. And um, <laughs> we're always big believers in um, bringing algal research to, uh, to, to light so that people understand what it's all about. Yeah, hey, thanks stuff. so much for joining us, Jackie, and thanks for calling in as well. I was—I have to confess, I wasn't sure how the Skype uh, Skype line was going to go, but it's been brilliant. Oh, the technology is fabulous now. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's amazing. We had a landline call to Anglesey last week, and, and this is way better than that one was. <laughs> yeah, I love Skype. Yeah. Oh, it's hard My to believe you—it's hard to believe you're all the way over in Japan. You could just be down the road. All right, yeah. thanks so much for joining us, and we'll catch up with you soon. No problem. Thanks for having me. Oh, our pleasure. Bye for now. Okay. Bye. Bye. Dr. Jackie Pocklington, all the way over in Japan. Thrown into it. Yeah. yeah sounds amazing. great. And it's wonderful that they really have an appreciation of um, of the real, you know, the base ecology and understanding biology, of, of which is, unfortunately, isn't really pushed here in Australia and we're really appreciated. So it's great that they have that. It is. Oh. Hey, uh, welcome, Terry Allen. Thanks very much, Bron. Into studio. Yeah. Our new dive, our dive, I can't say new because it's May now, but um, our dive reporter. So, yeah, good to have you in studio. Yeah, it's nice to be back in my old stomping ground of East Brunswick. I used to live two streets away. <laughs> yeah. I used to live three streets away and I'm like you. I've gone gone down to the south side now. The dark side. Yeah, down to the dark side. So I thought we might spend um, a bit of time talking about winter diving because um, winter is coming. 
<laughs> yes, it's yes, bronze, no. Yeah. <laughs> I liked your little comment on our Facebook page yesterday. This is the Radio Marinara Facebook page. Was like, you know nothing, bronze, no. <laughs> so let's talk about winter diving because it's something that, you know, particularly here in Melbourne, it can be off-putting for um, for those who don't kind of want to get cold and are, are prone to the suki lalas. Um, I learned to dive in July, mm. as you might remember, Terry, mm. and you were my first dive buddy. I don't know mm. if you remember that. Yeah. <laughs> but um, it was cold and wet. Well, of course it's wet. Cold and dark is what I was trying to say. Yeah. But uh, but it's exciting and it's a great time of the year to dive. Yeah. And look, you know, when I do a little bit of teaching as well, and we always say to people, look, if you learn to dive in winter or in Melbourne, you can dive anywhere in the world. And everything else seems warm and sunny and bright after you've learned to dive in Melbourne winter. <laughs> so true. <laughs> we used to find that in, um, in the Melbourne Uni Underwater Club as well. And we'd occasionally get someone who'd come for a dive with us and the only diving that they'd done had been up on the barrier reef in the middle of the day and the water temperature was 25 and they'd gone off diving in lycra or something and you know they'd come and go oh yeah yeah i've dived i'm qualified and i've got my ticket and Mm. i've done you know 20 dives and then they come and jump into port phillip bay in july and almost have a complete (laughs) shock (laughs) don't kind of get what it's all about so yeah talk us through some winter diving what's what's good diving to do in winter um look a lot of the diving can be good and and a lot of the weather actually can be good, believe it or not. We actually have more predominant um, northerlies. Uh, so you need to pick where you go, but you can get those beautiful glass-off days that we all know on the bay. If you go early, um, generally, you know, before the winds pick up, I mean, summer is actually a much windier time of uh, time of year. The other great thing with winter diving is you've got a lot less crowds. You know, the boats are not so busy if you're going boat diving, and um, you can get terrific uh, clear water. I mean, at the moment, you know, we've had a bit of rain, and it's probably getting a little bit murky, but I think another El Nino is coming, and um, unfortunately, but fortunately for us divers, it can often mean very good visibility if we haven't had a lot of rain. Yeah, definitely, Terry. That's something that I really love about winter diving. And actually, it usually starts about this time, but certainly not after this week of rain we've had. But it, there's just sort of a, a, a beautiful stillness to it. And um, as uh, the water gets colder, so everything sort of moves a little bit less. But when you go down there, the water's clearer. And then the light, there's something about the light in winter, even though it's sort of not a strong, strong, penetrating light of winter. It, uh, sorry, of summer. It just sort of, I don't know, for some reason brings out the colours of some of the things that you may not see, um, sort of some of the, some of the, 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 the non-greens and sorry, the, the yellows and the, and the oranges and the, and the pinks that might not be so obvious in summer really come out in winter. That, that's how I feel. Yeah, I, feel. I, I think you can get the, the rays of light obviously hit at a different angle if you're diving under the piers and things. And, and I think a really important tip for, for, especially for newer divers doing winter diving is, is get yourself a decent sort of torch. You know, they're, they're not very expensive now. And as you say, brings out the beautiful colours um, of the sponges and our sea stars and uh, and and the fish as well, the, especially things like leather jackets. So um, I think it's just you've got to be prepared. You've got to realise you've got to, you have to wear a few layers. If you're wearing wetsuits, you know, you can add an extra hood and vest, um, get some decent gloves. But now, of course, uh, for Melbourne, a lot of people are now moving to dry suits. Um, yesterday I just taught a dry suit course in the swimming pool 
the water temperature was 30 degrees and we all boiled in our <laughs> trusses. I had two Finnish guys, two Finnish uh, people, and oh, they came out like lobsters. But um, anyway, I said, well, you will appreciate it next week when it's uh, water temperature 16 degrees. So, uh, I mean, dry suits are expensive, but they really are a way to go and they, they allow you to dive all, all year round um, and especially when you're doing multi um dives on a day you know you're more you're less reluctant with a wetsuit to you know jump in again but with a dry suit it's a lot easier when did that transition happen with dry suits because i remember when we were diving together terry mm. that it was something that was almost frowned upon the, the concept of putting on a dry suit was it more just as in you know oh come on harden up just put on your seven mil like everybody else there was a, there's obviously been a transition where people have gone actually you know what they're actually quite a good idea yeah why suffer through this exactly when you can be warm and dry and still dive through winter i think the the technology's changed the old dry suits were big heavy rubber things that look like something you'd wear with a hard hat um i bought a dry suit i think about 12 or 13 years ago and it was mainly because i also do cave diving and it was also for teaching as well um so it probably started around that time and um and obviously melbourne was really the center of it and it's interesting now people in sydney and even people in Brisbane, believe it or not, actually start to use dry suits, especially for technical diving, long decompression um, diving, etc. Um, they just are safer. Mm. So and I think there's something that a lot of people may not know. The dry suit doesn't actually keep you warm. It only keeps you dry. And so underneath these dry suits, right, which you, sort of, you know, you are dry, you've got to wear a lot of clothes. Yes, you can. <laughs> and, uh, but that's the good thing with the dry suit. You've got that flexibility. So, I mean, I dive, as I said, I used one when I was up in Queensland in southern Queensland in the middle of winter and of course all the Queenslanders going oh bloody Victorian you know (laughs) soft blah 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 and after the third dive of the day peeled off my suit you know I just had a very light thin uh, onesie on underneath you know warmest toast and then uh, and everyone's going oh freezing and then in the middle of winter (laughs) you you add your layers but you're right you you go to your Kathmandu or those sort of shops and buy thermals and you know we have specialized things for under under the suit so yeah Yeah. and just dress like you're maybe going to the snow or something like that yeah 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 I've seen the one great with the uh, sort of the sleeping bag materials I've actually slept in mine once I was I was in a cabin and we forgot our bedding and I slept in mine it was wonderful We've got a couple of minutes left. Um, maybe just talk about a couple of key spots where you might be going diving sort of over the next month or two. Yeah, so we're all uh, waited with bated breath for the um, spider crab oh, yeah. uh, um, massing. Um, there's actually a Facebook page now called Spider Crabs something or other. Um, and with they, a few have been spotted. There was a small mass at Blairgarry Marina. So definitely Blairgarry uh, and Rye Pier. If you're very keen, join that Facebook site. Otherwise, just keep going. The next few weeks, they should be there. It's usually as the temperature hits about 15 degrees, we hopefully will see a mass and they can get one to 2,000. Amazing sight. Unique to Melbourne, actually. Yeah. And something, it's one of those once-in-a-lifetime things, you've really got to go and see it. Mm. It really is extraordinary. How about you, John? You got some dives coming up? Oh, yeah. I'm diving off uh, St Kilda and it's already about 13 <laughs> degrees down there. Oh. Um, so, <laughs> so um, no, I don't have any particular amazing dives coming up, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but I think definitely down down the south um, would be would be the place to go. And it's a little bit warmer down there too. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> Only one or two degrees. Yeah. <laughs> hey, uh, that brings us to the end of today's program. Thanks, Terry. No problem. And we're going to catch up with you in about a month's time. Yep. Talk about maybe cave diving. Yeah, or, yeah. yeah. Okay, no worries. Another 
another aspect of diving, and I want to talk about pier diving at some point as well, mm-hmm. some of the great things that you can see under piers. Thanks, John. Thanks, Bron. And thanks to Kath. Um, she's been panelling. Thank you to Kent. He's come to our rescue more than a couple of times today. So thank you so much. And uh, thanks to our guest too, Dr Jackie Pocklington uh, in Japan. Um, and uh, on next week's program, Angeline's coming in. We've got Rex Hunter coming in as well. And we'll be talking about longboard on the peninsula. Have a great Sunday. Have a great Mother's Day. And stay tuned for radiotherapy. Bye for now. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.